This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of having uh, back on the podcast at IJGC, Dr. David Gershenson, who is a professor in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Um, he's a great uh, friend and uh, certainly a, a mentor to me. So always really, really happy to um, have uh, this opportunity to discuss important topics with you, David. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. And today we're going to be talking about uh, germ cell tumors. So we're really looking forward and excited to this uh, discussion. Well, thank you, Pedro. It's a pleasure to be with you again and, and to talk about a, a topic that is dear to my heart. Yes, yeah, so David, I wanted to actually uh, start with that question. Um, how did you become interested in the study of uh, rare tumors and particularly germ cell tumors? Yeah, so when I started my fellowship in 1977, probably before you were born, Pedro. <laughs> no, uh, actually not. <laughs> um, I, I had the privilege of taking care of a couple of young women in their 20s who had recurrent yolk sac tumors. Hmm. And unfortunately, neither one of them survived. And that really, at the time, piqued my interest in that disease. Um, the MD Anderson GU medical oncologist at that time was a, a man named Mel Samuels. Mel Samuels was visionary and innovative he came up with the combination of vinblastin and bleomycin for the treatment of testicular cancer. And um, he was a rather gruff individual, but I went, you know, my, um, some of my uh, senior uh, faculty um, in G1 oncology said, why don't you go speak with him if you have an interest in this, which I did. And he was uh, predictably gruff, but, but very nice to meet with me. But that was an era when, uh, you know, if you recall, in 1977, that very year, Larry Einhorn uh, published, reported his landmark study of uh, the, the combination of bleomycin, vinblastin, and the addition of cisplatinum. Hmm. Larry had spent a year with Mel Samuels at MD Anderson, then went to Memorial Sloan Kettering. So he published that paper when he was at Sloan Kettering. But that he took that uh, on the foundation of what Mel Samuels had uh, developed. So uh, that led to, uh, you know, 1978, the next year was when the FDA approved cisplatinum for the treatment of multiple cancers, bladder cancer, think ovarian cancer, testicular cancer, et cetera. So we were kind of off to the races. And then I really developed an interest in learning about the various uh, histotypes of malignant germ cell tumors and also uh, tried to start uh, beginning to uh, develop a better treatment for the disease. Well, and, and what a journey it has been. And uh, thank you for, for that historical perspective on, on, the, uh, on the birth of, uh, of the therapy for, for this type of tumors. Um, now, I wondering if you could just describe for our audience uh, germ cell tumors. Um, what are the histotypes, the the typical demographics and, and how frequent or infrequent are these tumors? Yeah, so, you know, ovarian germ cell tumors constitute only about 5% of uh, ovarian tumors. So they, they are quite rare. They're derived from primordial germ cells 
uh, within the ovary. Uh, and they may be benign or they may be malignant. Um, the histotypes that arise from the ovary are, are similar to those that arise in the testis, of course, the male counterpart. And it's important to mention that testicular cancer is 10 times more common than ovarian germ cell tumors. So when we're thinking about this disease, we, you know, historically we've extrapolated a lot of the advances from, uh, from testicular cancer reports. The various uh, types include the teratomas, which may be mature or immature or monodermal. Um, uh, we have dysgerminomas, which are also one of the more common types, yolk sac tumors, uh, mixed germ cell tumors that most frequently would uh, include maybe immature teratoma and a yolk sac tumor or dysgerminoma and yolk sac tumor. And then we have the very rare uh, malignant germ cell tumors, polyembryoma, uh, non-gestational choriocarcinoma, and uh, embryonal carcinoma. So a number of different histotypes uh, that are, you know, biologically uh, behave a little differently uh, from one to the other. And and David, that, that brings us to, to a question by one of our fellows, uh, Jen uh, Davis-Olivera from the UK. And she asked, you know, many times, and particularly for trainees and, uh, and younger faculty, uh, that it, it's often challenging to, to remember all of the germ cell tumors and within that classification, do you have any uh, uh, strategies you can give to those young trainees as to like how to remember or at least say, well, these are the the, the ones that I that I need to focus on when uh, when uh, learning about germ cell tumors? Yeah, great question. I don't have any great you know major tricks or acronyms that I use. Um, <laughs> I think I think it's mainly just experience and uh, you know re repeating repetitively uh, going back reviewing them. Certainly, you know the ones most commonly to remember would be dysgerminomas, immature teratomas, and yolk sac tumors. And the other types are exceedingly rare. And so, if you can if you if you can even remember those three subtypes and how they're treated. Um, how they're managed surgically, uh, systemically, that's probably the best way. But yeah, I don't have any uh, magic, magical tricks at this point, unfortunately. Okay. Um, one of the other questions is, uh, you know, obviously you mentioned the rarity of these uh, tumors. So how do you, as a leading researcher in, in this area, how do we ensure that every patient or most patients with these tumors um, undergo evidence-based treatment modalities? Well, one of the most important things um, is getting to the right physician, uh, certainly. And that, that would be a gynecologic oncologist, or in the, in the case of children, it usually is a pediatric oncologist, pediatric surgeon. Um, but that's, and that really has evolved over the last several years. Um, education of both the medical profession and the public has led to more of these patients being referred earlier to gynecologic oncologists, for instance, and not being operated on by an obstetrician gynecologist who may not perform the optimal type of surgery. Uh, but it is an educational process. You know, the treatment of ovarian germ cell tumors has evolved. So just a little brief history 
lesson uh, in the mid 1960s uh, at MD Anderson, Julian Smith and colleagues began to uh, study the combination of ACFUSI, which was actinomycin D, 5-FU, and cyclophosphamide. And they used that for only a few years. It was, uh, you know, only modestly effective. And most women or girls with germ cell tumors were still dying um, of their disease. And then in 1970, the VAC regimen, vincristine, actinomycin D, and cyclophosphamide was introduced again by the MD Anderson group. And this was a five-day regimen given once a month for a total of, believe it or not, two years to these young patients, two years. My God. And uh, this did represent a, a progress because more, more uh, girls and young women were cured, but not all, particularly in advanced stage disease, VAC was not a very good regimen. And then, as I said, once cisplatinum came into the picture, by about 1980, uh, at the time I was now a junior faculty member, we began to use the, uh, the BEP regimen, which is now a standard of care. And that really, again, uh, resulted in uh, very, very high cure rates in stage one, which is the most common stage, you know, 95 plus percent. And even in stage three and four, 75% uh, or so uh, cure rates. So. Um, the other thing I would mention, Pedro, is that, you know, most of our learning with malignant ovarian germ cell tumors has been through uh, observational cohort studies or single arm trials. There aren't, you know, really hardly any uh, randomized trials. There have been a few randomized trials in testicular cancer. Probably the most uh, important was the New England Journal report of the uh, Benblastin bleomycin cisplatinum versus uh, etoposide bleomycin cisplatinum. And so the BEP regimen replaced the Benblastin regimen. Um, and we, of course, extrapolated that to uh, malignant ovarian germ cell tumors. And there have been other randomized trials in testicular cancer, but not really any in, in malignant germ cell tumors of the ovary because they're so rare. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned one thing that uh, it's uh, fitting with the next two questions by uh, Giulio Bonaldo from Italy. Uh, you mentioned the optimal surgical uh, management. And one of his first question is many times patients with a diagnosis of germ cell tumors are young and they still have a desire for future fertility. Um, focusing on this germinoma, um, what are the, the limits or the approaches on a fertility sparing treatment? Yes. Well, so the, so first of all, the median age of uh, patients with the malignant ovarian germ cell tumors is about 16. Mm -hmm. uh, and it varies from histotype to histotype, but it's around 16, 18. So most of the patients are in their teenage years or early 20s or, or may up to the early 30s. Um, um, the other thing that's important is that the vast majority are stage one, confined to either one or both ovaries, and I'll mention that in a moment. And most of them are limited, confined to uh, one ovary unilaterally. Mm -hmm. the, the two exceptions that complicate this are what you mentioned, dysgerminoma, which can be bilateral in 10 to 15% of women or girls. 
And the other issue is uh, a benign cystic teratomas or dermoids, which can be bilateral in about 15%. So when you, so most, the vast majority of uh, patients with uh, germ cell tumors can be managed with the fertility sparing surgery if they're not beyond childbearing age, um, number one. If uh, a, a young patient has bilateral ovarian masses, you have to think about, okay, is it dysgerminoma or could it be uh, just bilateral dermoids? Um, and so the key there is a, a decision-making process that has to occur intraoperatively, in which case you have to be thinking about not just automatically uh, performing a bilateral salpingoophorectomy, but maybe could be bilateral ovarian cystectomy sometimes, or if you have a malignancy, let's say you have a yolk sac tumor in one ovary, the other ovary doesn't look uh, quite as bad, you do an ovarian cystectomy, it's a dermoid. Mm -hmm. So you preserved at least a portion of one ovary uh, if in, in cases of bilaterality. And even there's some cases with bilateral dysgerminomas where a unilateral salpingoophorectomy is performed on one side and then the other, an ovarian cystectomy with a pre preservation of portion of normal ovary. Um, and so there have been cases like that as well, but you have to really be thinking about that. And that's why when these patients sometimes are operated on by an obstetrician gynecologist, who does not necessarily understand the biology of these tumors, they may autom automatically say, oh, bilateral malignancies, uh, they need to have a BSO. Yeah, absolutely. And really critically important. I think I'm, I'm listening to you saying, well, err on the side of uh, preserving that fertility and, and, and hopefully uh, sending those patients to specialists where they will also be at a facility with very good pathology intraoperatively as well. Um, and David, the, the next question from Julio is, I think it's about a point that keeps coming up many times and there's maybe differing uh, opinions about it. And that is on the role of lymphadenectomy in the surgical staging of germ cell tumors. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So overall, the lymph node involvement uh, rate varies a little bit from one histology to another. Probably most commonly that, uh, that would occur in dysgerminomas. Uh, a little bit less commonly uh, in uh, mixed germ cell tumors that may not include dysgerminoma, or for instance, immature teratoma, less than 10%. Um, so there have been a couple of studies that give us information. Um, Kumar et al. reported a SEER database study of 613 patients with malignant ovarian germ cell tumors who underwent, they all underwent lymphadenectomy. And they found that the five-year survival was about 95.7% in those with negative nodes and 82.8% um, in those with positive nodes. So the, certainly the five-year survival was, was less if they had positive nodes. But then uh, Nasiudis, um, in a national cancer database study of, over, of almost 3,000 women, um, found that only about half of the women underwent lymphadenectomy, the other half did not. And there was no difference in overall survival between those two groups, um, whether they had lymphadenectomy or not. And so that gave us evidence that maybe lymphadenectomy is not nearly as important as we once thought it was, even though 
I under I know that the you know the standard surgical staging among uh, gynecologic oncologists is to consider a bilateral lymphadenectomy, but it's this is a, a a point an important point in that we need to look at what is the standard surgical approach for pediatric surgeons operating on young you know girls, certainly less let's say less than sixteen years of age. And there, there have been some studies in the pediatric population. And what they found is their standard uh, surgery is a unilateral sapingophorectomy of the involved ovary, let's say, cytology or removal of ascites. And then the only other thing they do is they do a very comprehensive uh, visualization palpation of the entire peritoneal cavity and the retroperitoneum and they only biopsy or remove any areas that look suspicious for malignant implants or malignant, malignant involvement of, of lymph nodes. So if they have no enlarged lymph nodes, if the omentum looks normal, the peritoneal surfaces are normal, they do nothing else. And they have found that the uh, overall survival in those patients compared to patients with much more comprehensive staging is equivalent. And so we have to ask ourselves, does the lymphadenectomy really make a difference? I would say probably not. But if you do have enlarged nodes, then I think debulking those is important, but probably not doing a routine, uh, comprehensive uh, pelvic and periodic lymphadenectomy, because we know that can be associated with uh, long-term mor morbidity, particularly when you're operating on these young patients. Sure. Absolutely. Um, next question is from uh, Jovansa Koshiavili uh, in Georgia. And she asked, in middle and low-income countries or in resource-limited settings, when routine complete diagnostic workup prior to surgery is not financially feasible for every age-appropriate patient with a pelvic mass, what would be the best approach in order to identify patients with an absolute need of a complete workup for germ cell tumors or less common ovarian cancers in general? Um, and also, uh, how do you recommend regarding, you know, regarding the fact that intraoperative frozen session may be limited in these settings? Yeah, and that's, yes, the, the limitation of uh, the unavailability of frozen section can certainly be a, an issue, mainly, again, when you may be dealing with bilateral ovarian involvement. In terms of the uh, preoperative evaluation, you know, I think that the, the, what would what would be considered standard would be an ultrasound that usually is the maybe the first test that diagnoses an ovarian or bilateral ovarian masses, uh, tumor markers, so HCG and alpha fetoprotein, most importantly. And then the third thing would be to do uh, comprehensive imaging of the chest, abdomen, pelvis, with which usually includes a CT scan or in some centers a PET CT scan which uh, I know when, is not necessarily available. So if you had to limit it, it would be, you know, uh, tumor markers, I think would be the most important because that way you may triage the, the uh, patient, the young patient to a gynecologic oncologist in whatever country, and then uh, ultrasound and maybe, uh, you know, just use surgical evaluation rather than CT or expensive imaging studies if they're not available. That's about all I could say about that, um, but maybe that's somewhat helpful. 
Okay. Um, these next two questions come from Ryan Khan. He's uh, currently a fellow at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And uh, his first question is, are there instances where bleomycin can be omitted from the etoposide platinum uh, triplet combination? And how does that play a role in patients with pulmonary comorbidities? Yes. Great question. You know, I've spent a lot of time over the course of my career thinking about how can we eliminate bleomycin. You know, the bleomycin pulmonary toxicity uh, is real, uh, but it, fortunately, it's very, very rare. Uh, in my experience, we've not had any patients that have actually uh, succumbed to bleomycin pulmonary toxicity, but certainly it's been reported and it's occurred in a few of the GOG studies. Um, what I would say is this, there's no, uh, I, I don't think we can recommend at this point omission of bleomycin for the treatment of all of the germ cell tumors with one exception. Um, and that one exception is a dysgerminoma, which is one of the more common. Um, the GOG, Steve Williams uh, et al. reported the use of etoposide and carboplatinum for the treatment of uh, patients with stage 1B to 3 completely resected dysgerminomas. And they had, I think, around 40, 40 patients, give or take, in that uh, study. It was a, uh, obviously not randomized, single arm. Um, and all of these patients uh, did well. No patient developed a recurrence. So I think in pure dysgerminoma, you can eliminate bleomycin for sure and use something like etoposide carboplatinum. You know, in testicular seminoma, and these studies have been conducted mainly in the UK, they have used single agent, single agent carboplatinum at an AUC, believe it or not, of 10 <laughs> to treat, um, over, uh, I'm sorry, testicular seminoma with great success. Um, I don't think we need to be doing that necessarily, but I think etoposide carboplatinum, or you know, you could even make a case for single agent carboplatinum, but I wouldn't necessarily go there right now until we have more evidence. But I think you can eliminate bleomycin for, for pure dysgerminoma therapy. Okay, excellent. And his, his next question is, can we offer observation to patients with stage 1C malignant germ cell tumors? Uh, I think the short answer to that question is no, um, for not, not for stage 1C. So, you know, the, the, there's an important ongoing trial, AGCT 1531, that was uh, developed by the Children's Oncology Group and actually by a group called the MAGIC Group, led by um, a pediatric oncologist, Lindsay Frazier from Dana-Farber. They started meeting several years ago, and I had the uh, good fortune to be part of that group that met over a period of several years. Um, in the development of clinical trials for malignant germ cell tumors. Um, and we, this group actually developed this clinical trial. Um, this clinical trial uh, is, is uh, looking at two different cohorts. So in a low risk cohort, they wanna see if we can expand the criteria, the eligibility criteria for surveillance following surgery. Uh, you know, historically for the uh, gynecologic oncologists, the only patients had, who had been recommended for surveillance postoperatively were those with a 
a stage 1A or stage 1B dysterminoma, pure dysterminoma, or a stage 1A grade 1 immature teratoma. Well, this study uh, is, uh, is uh, including patients in the surveillance cohort that have uh, immature teratomas stage 1A uh, that are either grade 2 or 3. So it expands the eligibility for those. Um, and it also includes stage 1A yolk sac tumors, mm. as well as uh, non-gestational choriocarcinomas. So if, we, if that study can show that it's safe uh, to treat those patients with surveillance, that'll be a major advance. Um, then there's a second cohort, which is a standard risk cohort, in which, they're which would, would include patients with 1C. So they are being treated. They're not being uh, triaged to surveillance. Um, but that study is randomizing uh, these patients to either the standard BEP regimen or substituting carboplatinum for cisplatinum, giving bleomycin, etoposide, and carboplatinum uh, to other patients and to see if, they, see if we can substitute carboplatinum for cisplatinum, for instance, for stage 1C or stage 2 or 3 uh, germ cell tumors. And that will be advanced because we all are very well aware of the uh, adverse effects of, uh, of cisplatinum as opposed to carboplatinum. So that this is an important trial uh, that's ongoing. Excellent. I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot now. This next question comes from our managing fellow, Arthur Shu. And, uh, you know, as, as it pertains to the management of these tumors, what do the pediatric oncologists do differently than the gynecologic oncologists? Um, and perhaps uh, are there any specific tumors where one should refer to one or the other? Yes. Well, I've already mentioned the difference in the surgical approach, which is important and hasn't has not been resolved. Um, but the other major difference is in the management of pure immature teratoma of the ovary. So I was, again, fortunate to participate in a study that um, Dr. Pashankar published a few years ago, where we compared the GOG patients, a large group of GOG patients, all of whom received chemotherapy following surgery for pure immature teratoma, and the pediatric population from the children's oncology group, uh, most of whom received no chemotherapy postoperatively. Pediatric oncologists uh, are of the belief that immature teratoma is a chemo-resistant histotype of, of germ cell tumor, unlike the others, other types. Mm -hmm. So they don't uh, routinely recommend any chemotherapy for any grade of stage one immature teratoma or uh, mostly for even stage two or three immature teratomas. They're relying on surgery alone. What, what Pashankar found in this study was that um, 23 of the patient, 23% of the patients with stage or stage two or three immature teratoma did relapse. Only one of those uh, nine patients had a grade two immature teratoma. All the rest had grade three. So we know grade three is the highest risk for relapse. Again, pediatric oncologists, for the most part, are not treating those patients with postoperative chemotherapy. GYN oncologists are. 
this is an unresolved uh, controversial issue. I think, uh, again, the AGCT 1531 trial will at least hopefully resolve the issue of the stage 1A grade 2 and 3 cases. But for the advanced stage disease, we uh, there's work to be done to try to figure out if chemotherapy is really uh, effective or not. Very well. These next two questions are from Anissa Mburum in Kenya. And she asks, uh, first, what are the best indications for the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy and how best to implement it in germ cell tumors, uh, particularly since the bleomycin and topocyte platinum regimen is usually given as four cycles? Yeah, so, you know, th there's not a huge amount of evidence on the uh, reports on this. So there have been a couple of studies from India. Uh, and each of these studies had about 20-some patients, uh, and they did uh, utilize neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, in these patients uh, prior to uh, surgery. Um, I think, you know, if, if you have a patient with what is considered to be unresectable disease, they have, or maybe they present with liver metastases or just very extensive uh, peritoneal involvement or chest involvement, it's, it may not be unreasonable to uh, utilize neoadjuvant chemotherapy. But I think those, these cases, in my experience, are very few and far between. If, if neoadjuvant chemotherapy is utilized, my, I would say, of course, most of those patients are going to require more than four cycles of BEP, first of all. You may have to delete the bleomycin on maybe courses five and six, uh, but you're going to have to most likely, in many of these cases, utilize more than four cycles. So it would be uh, reasonable, in my view, to give maybe two cycles of BEP neoadjuvantly, then re-image and consider an interval surgery maybe at that point if there's been a great response, which in some cases there will be. Uh, rather than, but if not, you could maybe go to three or four cycles and then re-image. I would kind of look at it like that, but I wouldn't assume if you're going to start out with neoadjuvant treatment that you need to give three or four cycles before you image. I would do it sooner in the course. But again, it's important to, re to emphasize that these cases are, are very few and most patients should have primary surgery. And along those same lines, he asked, uh, you know, you were talking about the advanced cases, but what about some of the scenarios where you spoke to um, before where you just have two ovaries that don't look normal? And uh, her question is, you know, in that setting, rather than just remove one ovary and cystectomy in the other, why not not do anything and give neoadjuvant chemotherapy to those patients? Yeah, you know, I think that's that's a consideration. I'm not personally uh, at a point where I'm willing to go there. I would say, Pedro, mm -hmm. um, I, because I think with frozen section and very smart intraoperative decision making, you can you can manage that. And I think again, we don't know for certain that giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy is going to result in the same types of uh, overall survival that the standard approach has, because again, the reports include very few patients. Um, so I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not willing to say that we should just uh, automatically treat any of those patients with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, but it's a great question. And maybe 
in the future that will that will change. Okay. This question again from Ryan Kahn, and uh, he asks, what is the optimal second-line systemic therapy for patients with recurrent ovarian germ cell tumors? Um, okay, so most of this work comes again from testicular cancer reports, um, and there were early cancer, uh, testicular cancer reports that showed for recurrent testicular cancer, uh, the treat a treatment with high-dose chemotherapy would result in cure in about 25% um, of men with recurrent testicular cancer in general. Uh, Einhorn's group uh, at Indiana University uh, has worked on this and reported extensively as well. So what I would say is the treatment for a recurrent uh, germ cell tumor following BEP chemotherapy is high-dose chemotherapy with stem cell rescue. Mm -hmm. And because it sometimes takes a little while to organize that, because they have to be uh, evaluated by uh, transplant uh, physicians, sometimes you'll want to temporize with one or two cycles of TIP chemotherapy, uh, paclitaxel, ifosfamide, and cisplatinum. Now, if a patient has not previously had BEP at all, because let's say they are treated with surveillance, they have a stage 1A yolk sac tumor. They, they are treated with surveillance uh, if, if the results of AGCT 1531 play out. But then they recur uh, four months later. Then I would treat that patient with BEP. But all, for the patients who've been treated postoperatively with BEP, high-dose chemotherapy would be the standard of care. Other regimens have been used, uh, TIP by itself, or vinblastin, ifosfamide, cisplatinum, or maybe some of the gestational trophoblastic regimens have been used, but the standard is high-dose chemotherapy. Very well. And uh, Nuria Agusti from uh, Spain is asking, given the high sensitivity of these tumors to chemotherapy, is there any wisdom in, the, uh, in performing secondary cytoreductive surgery, even in cases of isolated or oligo metastatic recurrences? Yeah, great question again. Uh, so there's not a lot of data. Um, we reported uh, several years ago uh, on 20 patients um, who underwent secondary cytoreduction for recurrent germ cell tumor. 11 of them at the time of the report were alive. And then there more recently has been a Chinese study of 14, I'm sorry, 42 patients Mm -hmm. who underwent secondary cytoreduction. Um, and they had, uh, you know, reasonably good results. But we all know from our experience and all the studies with the, the common epithelial ovarian cancers, you know, those the early reports for that and secondary uh, cytoreduction were all retrospective or observational studies. Uh, all those studies show that if you can optimally debulk it with secondary cytoreduction, those patients are going to have a better outcome than the patients who undergo uh, suboptimal secondary cytoreduction. That you know, but what does that really mean? Then in epithelial ovarian cancer, of course, there have been three major randomized studies. Even those results are somewhat controversial. So it's a, it's because we only have retrospective data. We don't really understand completely the role of secondary cytoreduction. But I would say, certainly, if you have an oligometastatic site, 
it makes sense. Because, and, and the other thing to, to emphasize that sometimes these are mature teratomas. They're not, they're not recurrent malignant elements, in which case surgery is the treatment of choice mm -hmm. without any further treatment. Um, but secondary cytoreduction in those cases would be appropriate as well. But we have to, you know, just feel our way because you have to balance the morbidity of a secondary surgery and all the potential complications against the fact that these tumors are exquisitely sensitive to chemotherapy. But when we're talking about a recurrent patient, we know that they're already at high risk for not surviving uh, once they recur. And we only salvage at the most, as I said, about 50% of those patients. Fortunately, recurrence in malignant ovarian germ cell tumor is quite rare. But those, uh, those would be the comments I would make uh, related to secondary cytoreduction. We need, more, we need more studies to figure out if there is, what the exact role of that is. And David, as a follow-up question for Nuria is, and you, know, you mentioned that, yes, these tumors are extremely chemosensitive, but what do we do in those patients where there is resistance or refractory? Uh, they, they continue to progress after the uh, the initial treatment. What what are the current therapeutic alternatives uh, for these patients? Well, again, um, if I'm understanding the question correctly, I would say you know if they're recurring after uh, primary therapy, then the treatment is high dose chemotherapy with stem cell rescue, and that's always a, a tough pill to uh, swallow because it, it's a it's a very uh, I would you know radical approach, but that's really basically the way these patients are cured. And the use of conventional chemotherapy with TIP or venblastin, ifosfamide, uh, cisplatinum, or other regimens has not resulted in as high a salvage rates as high-dose chemotherapy. So I think we have to keep that at the top of our mind in terms of what's best for the patient. Excellent. So I just have a, a few more questions. This one is from Arthur Shu again, and he wants to get an update on the MAGIC uh, trial. Uh, I believe this is for low risk or intermediate risk uh, patients. Um, could you share with us any updates on that particular study? Yes. So that study uh, is going to include something like um, over, over 2,000, maybe close to 3,000 patients. Um, and they're so far, uh, looking at the, uh, website, 775 patients have been accrued so far. And remembering this is a trial, not only for malignant ovarian germ cell tumors, but for testicular cancer and for extra, uh, gonadal, uh, germ cell tumors. Uh, the GOG committed, uh, I think it was 60 patients per year to this study. Unfortunately, the accrual from uh, rather NRG has been much, much lower, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons. And so not very many uh, patients from um, the NRG have been accrued. But uh, so, you know, this trial is going to run probably another, at least another couple of years before it's completed. But I'm really looking forward to the data because if we can show that we can uh, abandon chemotherapy in a larger group of, uh, of our patients, particularly those with stage 1A uh, yolk sac tumors, 
or with the uh, grade two and three immature teratomas that will represent a real a real advance excellent so on that same uh, tone uh, our last question with regards to future therapies and options uh, andrea rosati who's one of our fellows also he's at gemelli in uh, rome he says you know certainly in in the context uh of where we are today uh, targeted therapy definitely could be beneficial in reducing toxicity as well as uh, addressing the, the lack of options for recurrent disease or refractory setting. Um, the emerging genetic landscape in, in this heterogeneous group of tumors indicates some specific genetic alterations like uh, KIT mutations and KRAS overexpressions uh, in this germinomas, PI3 uh, kinase, a KT1 mutations in yolk sac tumors, so he wants to know what what's the what's the future role of targeted therapy in this subset of tumors. Well, that's that's a, also a wonderful question. Yes, and you've mentioned some of the changes. So we've to start out with. Yes, uh, studies have shown some genomic changes in uh, malignant ovarian germ cell tumors. Dysgerminoma. You mentioned kit mutations, and maybe up to fifty percent of them. There's a chromosome twelve p gain copy number gain, and this is a chromosome that includes KRAS, for instance, in up to uh, even 80%. Um, yolk sac tumors, the PI3 kinase AKT mTOR pathway is amplified in up to 40% of these women. They also may have KIT mutations as well as a gain of chromosome 12P and so on, so on and so forth. So those studies have been reported. Um, and then the next question is, are there, there are certainly drugs that could potentially target those uh, aberrations, um, but the clinical data is, is just not there yet. So first of all, we, were all, you know, we would only be studying these uh, targeted agents to begin with in recurrent disease. Recurrent ovarian germ cell tumors, as I've mentioned already, are very uncommon. Most patients are cured. So we're going to, I'm sure, uh, end up extrapolating any data that emerges from testicular cancer, number one. Mm -hmm. There has been a, a study with a matinib or Gleevec for uh, uh, patients with both testicular and malignant ovarian germ cell tumors uh, that have a KIT mutation. Those results have not yet uh, been reported to my knowledge. Um, so there's very little information out there uh, showing efficacy of some of the targeted agents, even in these cases where there's some aberration that's been shown. So I think the, the summary of that would be, Pedro, that I think it's going to be quite some time before we see the emergence of any of these uh, treatments uh, to, to assume a standard of care option um, and again, just because germ cell tumors are so so successfully treated with the chemotherapy, even though there, there certainly are acute effects and even long-term effects, it's going to be around for a long, long time. So I don't uh, envision even in my, in my time that uh, we're going to see any major advances in this, although I, you know, I hope I'm wrong. And I hope there are, but I think it will come from testicular cancer studies. Fantastic. Well, David, as always, it's a, it's a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you and congratulations uh, on 
all that you have contributed over this many years uh, with regards to what we've learned about not only germ cell tumors, but rare tumors. And uh, as always, uh, we learned so much from, from speaking with you. And uh, uh, thank you always uh, once again for your mentorship and your, and your friendship. Thank you once again for accepting our invitation and uh, always a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure being with you, Pedro, and you've done such a, a marvelous job with the journal uh, and its readership, and uh, you're certainly to be uh, congratulated, so thank you.